This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18+. plus. Rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with myself, Chris Hall, and Pete George from the Albion Analytics Twitter account. Well, as the old saying goes, it's the hope that kills you. And they've only gone and given us hope. Seven points from three games and undoubtedly the performance of the season against Fulham. Pete, have you seen enough in the last two games to think we can now sustain a push for the playoffs? Or would you urge caution and for excitable people like me to not get too carried away? Well, I said it a couple of weeks back that the playoffs were gone and we should uh, just try and enjoy the rest of the season in the best way that we can. But I think I'm starting to be swayed a bit because, I mean, when you look at it, we've got, I think it's nine games left and we're, we're currently six points behind Middlesbrough in, in second, uh, not second, sixth at the time of recording. And also... Nobody in this division can string two results together. Well, no, that's not fair. Nobody out of the uh, out of the playoff chasing pack can. Uh, Fulham and Huddersfield have strung plenty of results together, but out of that pack, every time you think one of them is getting on a little bit of a run, whether it be Middlesbrough, Nottingham Forest, Sheffield United, whoever that might be, they go and drop points somewhere that they shouldn't drop points. Yeah, and we've just played two teams that you mentioned that have been able to string a run of games together, and we've still got. We've still got Bournemouth, Forest, Coventry, and, and I mean, you might even put Blackpool into into a group of teams that are still chasing that those playoff spots. So, I mean, they're real six pointers. Well, if we're chasing them, Blackpool are because they're, they're they're a point behind us with a game in hand, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. And of the games left, we've still got four of the the bottom eight. I mean, that would be the bottom seven if it hadn't been for Derby's point deductions. So, in theory, there's definitely points to be won in the last few games of the season. 
I mean, I would say as well at this point, before we get into the granular on the on the two games that we've had since we last recorded, after that performance against Fulham, again, at the risk of getting carried away, but if we can play like that, we've got nothing to fear from anybody, have we? No, like you say, by far the best team in the league that we've just played and we've played them off the park. Anyone that watched the game will tell you that. Marco Silva at the end of the match said it in his interview and yeah, I don't think you can argue with it. So if we keep that up, we're, well, I've got to say, I think we're in with a chance. Obviously, we kept the same shape from the whole game for the Huddersfield game. Now, a lot of people looked at the Huddersfield game and viewed it as a poor performance. I personally think that that is results bias. And I think that they are taking two very marked incidents in the game and using them to dictate how they saw the game. I actually thought, largely speaking, it was a fairly good performance against Huddersfield. I thought there were, there were clear dips in our performance that came after the two goals, but that was probably to be expected given that we are, we were, we're low in confidence. We're low in confidence at home or we were, um, we were low in confidence at home. And I think probably some of the reaction I thought the fans stuck with them until the second goal, but I think the reaction from the f- to the second goal probably knocked the stuffing out the players. And and at that point, Bruce needed to bring on reinforcements. Unfortunately, Andy Carroll and Grady Dean Garner came on and and did very well for us. But even and, and people have highlighted that last ten minutes and said, you know, Grady uh, Bruce, uh, Grady Carroll were our saviors, which to a certain extent is definitely true. But Pete, would I be fair in saying that? Even before that, barring two appalling mistakes from Sam Johnston, which I do feel that he's been a bit unfairly criticised for because largely speaking, I think he's an excellent goalkeeper. And I think there's a little bit of lazy narrative goes on that he's down tools because his contract's up in the summer. Don't believe that for one second. Certainly didn't look like it last night. But putting aside two uncharacteristic, big, big mistakes from Sam Johnston, I thought we were all right, weren't we? Even, Even before we brought on the subs. Yeah, I didn't think we were bad at all. We started the game really well, I thought. Matt had a shot from outside the area within like the first five minutes that, that forced a good save from the Huddersfield keeper. And then for the rest of the game, I thought I thought we were, we were decent. Huddersfield looked good. They looked very good in their shape. Kept that well and kind of didn't allow us to play out the back, out from the back like we, we wanted to. But um, we still managed to at points to just switch the play and kind of beat them to the other side of the pitch. Uh, that's also where the first goal came from for them though like I say they kept the shape well and weren't aggressive when they pressed but they chose the right moment and and it was obviously a mistake from Johnston but I think it was also kind of well forced from from Huddersfield and I'm not completely trying to defend Johnston because I do think they were ultimately two mistakes from him but I think the second one could have easily been blown up for a foul on Andy Carroll before but saying that we had a bit of luck from the ref for the penalty maybe so works both ways really but yeah I thought it was a good performance. I think the other thing to mention is that, again, when we talk about what is slightly lazy narrative, we, we called out things like the, the phrases like plan B getting thrown around when Val was in in charge and blaming of the formation. I think these are sometimes easy things that can that can get chucked around. And similarly, I think another easy thing that can get chucked around a little bit is this is a poor division. This is the I, I keep hearing people say this is the worst championship ever. I mean, first of all, I don't know how on earth that is even remotely measurable second of all surely it's all relative if it's the worst championship ever then we are one of the worst uh, worst 
championship sides ever. We're a part of the worst division ever. So it's all relative. And therefore, we're competing at this level with uh, with teams who maybe have been impacted by COVID. But I actually don't agree that it's the worst championship ever. I think Fulham have got an obscene amount more money than anybody else and are being hugely competitive. But I, I look at Bournemouth squads and uh, uh, Bournemouth squad and I, and I see maybe five, six players in there that are definitely going to play in the Premier League at some point, whether for Bournemouth or somebody else. I look at QPR and I see some quality young players coming through. I mean, there's a, there's a number of other clubs that I could that I could rattle through and, and pull out players, even at the bottom of the league. I, I've said before, I've said on Twitter this this last week that, you know, I'd love to see us take John Swift from from Reading. I think he'd be he'd be a great player for a, for a team gunning for the top six, which tells you something if there's a player at a team at the bottom of the division, who'd be who'd be good for that? I think Derby have just had one of their young players signed by Crystal Palace. They're obvi- the teams at the bottom of the league, obviously, aren't that awful either. So I do think it's a little bit of a lazy narrative to say this is the worst championship ever. It's not something that can be particularly argued because there is absolutely no humanly possible way of measuring that. But I think when you come up against a side like Huddersfield Town, I think because they're Huddersfield, even though they have had a spell in the Premier League, I think there's this feeling like we should roll them over. They haven't lost since November. And to go and face up to this side and match them toe-to-toe, I know this is not something that Albion fans want to hear, that going toe-to-toe with Huddersfield Town is a success. But let's be real about where we are right now and the season that we've had. To match up to a team that hasn't lost since November come away with a point against them and also to, as I say, match them for large periods of the game. You take out two stupid mistakes from Sam Johnston. I really don't think they had anything else in the game up until the point where we threw everything by the kitchen sink at them and the game was so ridiculously open that they were obviously going to have chances. I think if Sam doesn't make those two mistakes, I can't say this for any certainty, obviously, but I don't really, I don't think they probably score. In the game, I think if Sam doesn't give them two goals, they probably don't score. And I think for a team who have been on the run that Huddersfield have, for us to do that to them should be a success. I know nobody wants to hear that. I know we want that we want to view ourselves as the big dogs in this division, a team that should be going for automatic promotion, a team that is you know has bounced between the divisions and has Premier League players or should have Premier League players. But I think the reality of where we are at the moment, Pete, is that matching a team at, like Huddersfield when they're in the kind of form that they were in coming to the Hawthorns is a success, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. When you consider the kind of form that we've been in for the past last the past month, two months, when you compare it to Huddersfield's form, then yeah, I mean, we're kind of going into it as quite a big underdog. So the performance and the result in the end, I'd say is a, a real positive. And um, going into it, we didn't really know what our, our best lineup was or our best shape was. The three five two worked well at Hull, but again, that is Hull who are you know bottom half of the championship and doesn't necessarily work against the team that were in the third place at the time. So we've gone into it not really knowing the best best lineup and shape, and we played well, I think. And one way to look at it is is the field tilt, which kind of shows whether who had more possession in the attacking third for each team. It's similar to possession, but more focused on kind of territory. Albion had. 56.4% over the whole game, which is, I mean, that's a promising stat. And when you look after Alvin's two goals, then we had 73.5%. So we we were really penning them in and moving the ball around in their, in their defensive third, our attacking third. And I mean, we could have definitely nicked a win at the end. 
and should have as well. I do. I honestly, I'm I'm row O in the in in the Brummy Road sort of um, like middle of the goal. So I was literally right behind that. Grant's got to keep that down for me. I, I you know I think he actually had a had a fairly decent game, but I, I just felt felt like he struck that too early. He's he's got to give that ball a little bit of a, another moment to drop. I, I don't want to dwell on the Huddersfield game too long because obviously. It's a few days in the past now and we have played another game since and I want to get on to talking about Fulham. But just before we move on from the specifics of Huddersfield, Pete, as a data analyst, where, where the heck do you start when you try to pick the bones out of the last 10 minutes? Because that was absolutely crazy. And I mean, if you can tell me what shape formation was going on, I mean, it was it it was it was all verging on playground football where like everybody get forward get the ball in the box and if they break on us and score whatever it happens it was it was balmy wasn't it yeah it was a bit crazy and I actually had someone message me on Twitter asking what the shape kind of went to after Diangana went on and I think it to me it stayed the same as it was I think Diangana played as a left wing back but that kind of just highlighted the um the attacking intent that we had that he was a left wing back, but he it was did playing say more the as a same winger. for me. But I mean, just to, just to ask you on this one, it felt to me like we'd almost gone to Chris Wilder's centre halves because Semi Ajayi was playing centre half, but he was on the edge of their penalty area for for half, which is obviously where the equaliser has come from. Yeah, and I think we did that in parts against Hull as well. Ajayi had a few crosses in, and Clark always is always well for this whole season. He's been getting forward a bit, but Ajayi definitely overlaps a bit more and runs into that space and I mean yeah like you say that's where the goal came from he he put the ball into the box for for Carroll to to head in so yeah I think it was a similar shape but we were just like you say throwing more men forward and just trying to cause them problems which we I mean we definitely did didn't we and just while we're talking about the defense I, uh, and I'm going to move the conversation toward more towards Fulham now I want to spend a moment to I mean al- al- let's almost have the Matt Clark appreciation moment because I, tw- uh, I tweeted after the Fulham game that it was like watching prime Rio Ferdinand, watching Matt Clark in that first half against Fulham. <laughs> I genuinely stand by that to a certain extent. Okay, that's the fan in me getting a little bit carried away, but he was unbelievable. I thought his data was good against Huddersfield as well. I thought, it, I think it's made a big, big difference in coming back into the side generally. I, I think he's a huge player for us. I think he's been a huge player across the course of of the season i don't i i don't know whether there's a fee agreed in the loan agreement i don't know whether i don't even know for certain that brighton will want to sell him but if there is a possibility of getting matt clark for a reasonable fee we've got to do it haven't we he looked brilliant against fulham he looked so composed at the back and he just seems to a lot of the time he seems to have eyes in the back of his head like a They'll try and play through ball behind him, and it'll go. It'll kind of get in the way of it, intercept it, and it'll just know that the player behind him isn't pressing him or is pressing him, and he'll either pass out quickly or just be composed on the ball. And then he got forward and supported Townsend well, and made some nice com- combinations in the final third, allowed us to attack down that wing. So I think he's perfect for a back three. He gets forward well. He's comfortable when he's forward. That's something else. A lot of defenders kind of look a bit out of place when they're in that final third, but he he looks good in there. Reads the game really well and he's composed on the ball. So if we can get him for a reasonable fee, then we should definitely be looking at it. And the other thing is, and we've because we've talked about this when we've talked about our recruitment, is part of the problem with our recruitment is players not appreciating in value. He's 25 years old. Now, if you get Matt Clark for 
anything I would say four million or under. I can't see any way that Matt Clark doesn't get uh, gain value over the next three years. Do you? Yeah, I'd say four million would be a, a very good deal for him. Still long, it's still still young, as you say, especially for a centre back, and he's left footed as well, which is it's a rarity to have left footed centre backs that are good in playing the ball out from the back and getting forward. It's kind of what we mentioned about Greaves at Hull and why we like the look of him because teams that want to play a back three need. Well, they don't need, but they, it definitely helps to have that left-footed centre-back that can pass the ball out and carry the ball out, kind of helping that attacking third as well. So they're a bit of a bit of a commodity. Just while we're on the on the subject of recruitment, Pete, because it has done the rounds, and from what I believe, this is accurate that Jason Malumbi has a agreed fee in his in his loan agreement, which the rumour is has now been activated by the amount of appearances that he is that he's made. I don't believe it to be an awful lot of money. I, I believe it to be under a million, quite a bit under a million. Uh, actually, I think it, I, I think it's probably around three quarters of a million. And I was just a bit shocked at the response from Albion fans to that news being reported by a number of outlets that Malumbi would probably join permanently in the summer. Now, I realise he hasn't played a great deal. He's he's made 12 starts and quite a few of them have come when things have not been going particularly well for us. I think he's played in a in a in a couple of in a couple of decent wins. I think he I think I might be right in saying he started in the in the win over Bristol City. So he has a, he, he has played in a couple of decent games and the and the fans like the look of him. I think it was him and Snodgrass in the middle against against Bristol City. I could be wrong, but I think he, uh, I think that's that was the midfield combination that day. So he has he has had some positive performance, but I can understand why given recent form and recent events that probably recency bias stops people remembering the good games he's had and probably remembers the fact that well none of our midfield have looked terribly good up until the last couple of games really and Malumbi's not been in the side for the last couple of games so since Livermore came it came back but there's a few things here for me first of all if he's 22 and costing 750 grand I don't think that's a bad deal. I think he's a player that has looked decent in this division before when he's played for Millwall. I actually think he's looked decent for us at times. It's difficult to judge a player when he doesn't get any sort of a run in the side. It's also difficult to judge a player when he is playing in a midfield where he hasn't got anyone creative to give the ball to. It's been a bit different last few games because Taylor Gardner-Hickman's been in in there and you've had Robinson and, and Grant up front with somebody to give the ball to. But really, particularly under Val, what our central midfielders were asked to do was either give the ball back to the centre-halves or go long, which is not going to make anyone look particularly brilliant as, as a footballer. But I would be in, one, I'll be interested to see him in that midfield when he has more progressive players to play with. And I do think he'll be able to do something for us. Also, I do wonder who some people seem to think that we are going to go and get to go and sit on our bench because he started 12 times this this season. Now, probably we will have Livermore, Mowat. We may well have Sawyers back next season and hopefully we will go and sign a number 10, like I say, I've kicked around the names like Wallace and Swift, who are who are both on free transfers. I wouldn't mind either of those, but hopefully we will have that type of player, which means somebody like Malumbi will be basically, he's being bought to one play back up to Livermore and Mowat 
and possibly Sawyers, but probably most specifically Livermore. And also to probably be a long-term replacement for Jake Livermore. And I don't know, really know what, why anybody thinks that we are going to get anything other than a young developing player to do that. I also think getting getting in for 750 grand again if that's what it is is not is not a bad deal. And the, the people seem as well to forget that players develop. I mean, I remember watching Connor Townsend and thinking what on earth have we bought here in his first season and a half really at the club. I mean, I remember going into the going into the Premier League season thinking, "Oh my goodness, if Kieran Gibbs get his gets his customary injury, we are so stuffed here because there's no way this lad can play in the Premier League." He was one of our best players. Players develop, young players develop and get better, and there's no reason to think that Malumbi can't do that as well. I think at 750 grand and 20, 22 years old, and given the amount of money we would probably have to spend if we didn't bring him in to get a player of similar quality, which would probably be more than what we're spending on him, I just think it's a no-brainer, don't you, Pete? Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Like you say, he's young on a pretty cheap deal for what he is. He's had a couple of seasons in the Championship where he's got a bit of experience, and, and to me, he seems a like a young replacement to... Livermore, he can play in a and likes to play in a similar way, similar way. I think he'd look pretty good in that role that Livermore's been playing, where he kind of sits in front of the the back three at the minute and just provides it with a bit of protection. Kind of helps out on either side if he needs to, but mo- mostly just sits in front of the back three and, and distributes the ball to either the wide centre backs or maybe to the wide the wide eights as I'm calling them, Garden Hickman and, and Moat. Yeah, I think Malumbi would look look decent in that kind of role. Obviously, he's not a 10. There's no way we're signing him to be a 10 or a really exciting player to watch. But I'd say he's a good, steady player that you need in your squad. You can't have a, a whole 11 of Mateus Pereira's. So on a, a fairly cheap deal and a young player, I'd say it's definitely a good signing. And you can't always buy players as well. That you, you, well, you, you, you can only buy so many players that are going to be starters because they're expensive, aren't they? At some point, you have to, you, you have to buy players who are going to going to go behind those players to back them up and i think what's really important is that is that what you when you do bring those those players in to back up the the first team players that you don't put too much of a dent in the budget that you need to spend on getting the really important positions and the re- the really important positions in the summer have to be a number 10 without any shadow of a doubt. Maybe a centre forward depends. If DK comes back and we keep Carroll and we've got Robinson and Grant in there, maybe maybe we don't need a nine, but I, I personally would like to see us have, an, have another option in, in that position because we've seen how much we've struggled when DK has has got injured. I mean, we obviously only had him for a game and a half, but he, he looked like he was going to make a difference and then bang, he was injured and, and suddenly we struggled to score goals. But we desperately need, need a 10 and we probably, need, we probably need another option in that position for if that player got injured because we don't want to be in a DK situation with the number 10, where if the number 10 gets injured, we've got absolutely no one to step in. If Sawyers doesn't come back, we do, we, we, we would need an eight. So we, we don't, you know, we need a few cover positions. I we need a backup for Jake Livermore because, you know, you've got to love him. He's been. Uh, I didn't love him after the Sheffield United game, and I'm well aware that I'm being a bit of a hypocrite by saying you've got to love him because of some of the things I said about him. But he's 
he, fair play to him. He's proved me and a lot of other people wrong. He's come back into the side and he's been absolutely tremendous. But we know what we get with Jake Livermore. He is not going to play 46 championship games in a season because he will get sent off probably at some point and he will definitely accumulate at least five bookings during the season. So you need a backup for for Livermore in that position. You also need, for me, you need at least one backup for the fullback positions, especially if Taylor Gardner-Hickman is going to play in midfield because... I, honestly, if Furlong or Townsend at the moment got injured, I don't know who would play in those positions unless you move Taylor Gardner-Hickman out of a position he's playing brilliantly. So we do need one or two backup positions. And you've got to be frugal when you're getting those in because what we don't want to do is not be able to afford the 10 that we want or the 8 that we want or the striker, if we indeed we want a striker, that we want the really, really important positions because we've spent too much money doing what is an important job of backing up positions like Livermore and positions like the fullbacks. But we know these players are probably going to play 12, 15, possibly at a push 20, get 20 starts in a season. What's also important when you're planning your recruitment as a club is to have kind of steady step to replacing the older players with younger players. So I'm not exactly sure on the ages, but I I guess Livermore's about 32 now. And, um, Malumbi 22 is it again I'm not sure on the ages but Livermore's you know he's coming towards the end of his career I'd say he's still got a couple of years left but um, Malumbi is probably a couple of years away from the kind of getting to the prime age of his career so you kind of want to slowly replace Livermore with Malumbi maybe and you need that in every position to just kind of smoothly transition into a next kind of group of players a bit like we did with Townsend from Gibbs. I mean, you're quite right on the ages, by the way, the 10 years between them, 22 for, for Malumbi and 32 for, for Livermore. And that's that's largely what we did bringing in Townsend from, from Scunthorpe, giving him 18 months under Gibbs, where Gibbs was the first first choice. OK, you know, it, if Ferguson hadn't gone off to gone off to Crystal Palace, then maybe it might have been different because obviously he was playing, although natural, more naturally a right back was playing that left back role for a period of the season, but we, we did that succession planning with Townsend into Gibbs. And, and as I said before, Townsend didn't look like anything when he was playing understudy to Gibbs in the championship. But after Gibbs got himself sent off against Everton, Townsend never looked back, did he? No, he didn't. And he's been brilliant for the last two seasons. But yeah, I'd imagine Townsend would have learned a lot of Gibbs and Malumbi will be learning a lot of, of Livermore. And one more thing that makes it to me a good, bit of recruitment is that we've had him around the club for the past um seven eight months so you'd hope that the the club know know what who he is what he is what kind of character he is and and hopefully have kind of taken that into consideration so that we're starting to to build a good set of characters in the dressing room right let's move on to the enjoyable topic of talking about about fulham so a tremendous performance the undoubtedly the performance of the season we didn't just beat the best team in the league, we played them off the park. We absolutely played them off the park. It was criminal that we went in at nil-nil. I mean, a combination of a couple of chances that we should be tucking away, but to be fair to Rodak, some very, very good goalkeeping, I I have to say. I thought he was the one player for for Fulham that stood out and and, and probably can say had had a really, really top game. But that tells you everything you need to know if they're going off the pitch and their goalkeeper was the best player. Nine shots from, from us, nine to eight compared to Fulham. 
That doesn't tell the story. What tells the story is we had five shots on target. They had just the one. We kept a team who has scored 90 goals to one shot on target, Pete. How did we do it? And just to emphasise that further, Albion created three big chances and, and uh, had an XG of 1.54 and Fulham had an XG of 0.7, which mostly came in the last 10 minutes when Albion were kind of sitting back and absorbing the pressure. So I think we were brilliant for the whole game. I put a tweet out saying credit to Bruce and the coaching staff because I think they managed it perfectly. They got the tactics spot on initially and managed the game at the end towards the end when we kind of needed to just make the right subs. He brought Carroll on, who allowed us to relieve a bit of pressure. Grady came on and provided us with a bit more energy and maybe a bit more comfortable in being on the ball and, and kind of carrying it. And also used used time, wasted time pretty smartly with the corners at the end and making those subs. So all in all, I think it was managed perfectly. And I think all the players had 9 out of 10, 10 out of 10 performances. I know there's a lot of love for Andy Carroll, understandably so. Is, but is that his best role with us, is off the bench rather than, rather than from the start? Because he, he seems to get into games a lot more off, off the bench rather than, rather than from the start. I don't know whether teams can get to grips with him better, whether we can't. Obviously, we lose something in the press when, when, when Carroll is on the pitch because as much as he has a lot of qualities, you've said it before, Pete, pressing is not, is not one of them. Do you think his best role is super sub for us? I'd say in most games it probably is, but I think it kind of depends on the opponent. If if we know we're going to come up against a team that's going to sit in and just allow us to have the ball, then I'd maybe start him because if we've got a lot of the ball in the final third and they're just going to sit in a, a deep block, nice and compact, we might have a lot of space out wide to kind of whip balls into the box. And I don't think there's anyone in the league that you'd want, want in your box to head balls home than Andy Carroll. So I think he, in certain games, he might have a space in the starting lineup, but I mean, don't get me wrong. Grant and, and Robinson have been brilliant in the last, in the last two games, Fulham especially. So I think they've got to, got to continue with those two at the minute. Let's just dwell on those two a little bit because a few, a few weeks back, I think it was after the Swansea game, you, you and I on this podcast were myself in particular, I must say, were pretty critical of those two. Grant for me wasn't contributing anything. In games, I mean, he was going through one of those mad spells that he has where he doesn't assist, he doesn't score, he doesn't have make progressive passes. And Robinson, I felt, was was ducking out of things. I don't know what what Steve Bruce has said to Callum Robinson over the last few days prior to the Fulham game. But at times I thought I was watching blooming Jamie Vardy, the way he was chasing after people, the way he was, he wouldn't, wouldn't give anything up. And honestly, I don't like, I don't like getting on any Albion player. I don't, I don't like feeling like I have a low opinion of any Albion player. And I want, I want to like Callum Robinson because some of the stuff he can do with a football is very, very enjoyable to watch. I love any player that plays with a smile on, on their face but genuinely, all I've wanted from him all season is to see that level of commitment for when there is a 50-50 ball, that he goes into it with the same commitment as the player he's going into it with, that he wins as many as he loses of those kind of challenges. And that when somebody's trying to take the ball off him, that I feel like it is difficult. I had somebody on Twitter before the game, before the Fulham game kicked off, describe... Callum Robinson as if I was a defender the kind of striker that I would like to play against and prior to the Fulham game I would have 100% subscribed to that opinion Pete what changed because that's that's the Callum Robinson we want to see isn't it 
here is brilliant alongside Grant and I think it really helps playing them both together and it probably helps playing them both in a kind of central role. I think Robinson's a bit more free to drift around and help out on both wings, but I mean, Robinson complete, he completed two passes into the penalty area to Grant and Grant completed one to him, which was the goal in the end. And it wasn't only in the Fulham game. There was, I think the Grant's final chance against Huddersfield that he hit the bar with was a, a little scooped pass through from Robinson. So they link up really well when they, when they play together and they're forming a real, a real strike partnership, one that you don't tend to see them too much in football in the, in recent years, but I mean, they just seem to know where each other are and they find each other really well. So long may it continue. One of my problems prior to, prior to the whole game really was that we weren't seeing that much output really from our forward players. So I was looking at where the shots were coming from, where the, where the key passes were coming from. They weren't coming from our strikers. And yet, uh, well, I mean, obviously it was a front three prior to that, really, for most most games. And then I look at the data against Fulham and we've had nine shots in the game. Seven of those nine have come from the front two. Robinson has had two shots. Both have hit the target. Grant has had five shots. Three have hit the target. So the output from them in that game against Fulham, and to be fair to them, in both the Huddersfield and Hull games has been really good. You see, as you say, you see them carving out a bit of a partnership. And I mean, what, what's, what is absolutely crazy that we, I don't think in a million years, we thought two and a half weeks ago that we would be able to say this is that if Daryl DK's fit tomorrow, you can't start him, can you? Which is mad. But that is the honest, honest truth at the moment. Yeah, you've got to keep them, Robert and, and Grant, playing together at the minute because I mean they're playing so well and playing off each other so well. And I think they're kind of benefiting from the shape with the kind of really overloading the the wide areas. I think it's leaving them with a bit more space in the middle to to kind of find each other and find the three passes to each other. And not only that, but they're pressing well again and they're spacing themselves well when we win the ball back for a goal against Fulham. We we pressed them on the ball and. And they both weren't directly involved in the press, but they were spaced perfectly to Grant receive the ball straight afterwards in acres of space. And Robinson made a smart move after that to to have the through ball played to him and a brilliant finish as well. And I know you like this, Pete, all the shots again inside the 18-yard box. Yeah, I think there was one that wasn't, but apart from that... But, yeah, well, I'll they're... have who scored if that's true, because their 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 data says all in the eighteen yard box. But it, it, it but I I trust you, Pete. I trust you. <laughs> we'll go with Eva. But yeah, and I think the xG per shot. Um, it was a high xG per shot as well. So we're getting shots off in quality areas, not just inside the eighteen yard box, but in good areas there. And um, the other thing is that Furlong his long long throws seem to be more effective. I think we only got to the end of one of them, but. They were in really good areas and Fulham seemed to struggle to deal with them. So He's been he gets... on the weights, hasn't he? <laughs> yeah, they, were, they look really impressive against Fulham. If we can continue that, then we'll definitely score from one sooner rather than later because it's definitely been a while since, since we last got a goal from one. And just looking at the other end of the pitch as well, Pete, the other, the other really, really significant thing from the Fulham game, other than how we attacked, and I thought how we attacked was absolutely superb, was how quiet we kept the best striker in the division I mean he's a hundred grand a week striker not that that necessarily means output but his output is absolutely tremendous as we've said before he has scored more goals on his own than 25% of the EFL 
clubs. I mean, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yet you look at his data from our game. He had 37 touches of the ball. That is the least of any Fulham outfield player who completed 90 minutes. He had two shots in the whole game. Neither of them were on target. One of them was actually a pretty presentable chance that he scooped over. The other was absolutely nowhere near. I mean, we we completely and utterly nullified him, Pete. How did we do it? I think Bartley had a, an outstanding game. I don't think he was given too much credit for it on social media after the game in particular. But yeah, I thought he was really good. And I think he's one of the best defenders in the league for defending the box. Maybe not on the ball, but heading balls away and, and making tackles and blocks in the box. And I th- well, I think it was more t- to do with the fact that we didn't allow the ball to get into Mitrovic too much and when we did then Bartley was there to to kind of stop him and Clark and Ajayi did well to to stop Wilson and um, Carvalho as well so all in all I think the pack three had had an excellent game and it's one of the best games I've seen them have in well since since Valerian Ishmael was at the club. And just shattering forward to the weekend Pete was that performance against Fulham is that is should that be indicative of the way we play going forward now or was it a specialist tactic for for Fulham is it is it something that we we should hope that that we should say that's the bar now that's that's replicable and look to the players to produce that again and again some aspects yes because it was a top quality performance and it's I'd say it's a similar shape or the same shape that we used against Huddersfield where we're decent and Hull where we looked good so I think we're starting to head in the right direction. Fulham, in some ways, made it an easier game for us than some teams would because of their high line and their aggressiveness to win the ball back. Gave Grant, Robinson, Taylor Gardner, Hickman plenty of space in behind to run into if we could play that through ball. So I think that kind of played into our hands. But I think we've got the quality of players when they're playing when they're playing at the top of their game to break down any team in the league. So I think it's definitely got to be the standard to follow up on. Well, let's hope that's exactly what the Baggies do, that they follow up against Bristol City at the weekend. That's all the time we have for today. But if there's something you want covered on the pod, and I've seen people tweeting Pete, asking him to work out certain different areas of of data and and give them some information. If there's something you want him to cover, I'm sure he will. And if you want, there's something you want us to cover on, on the pod, then please do reach out to us. We've got a pod account at Albion Analysis. Or if you want to tweet either of us individually, my Twitter handle is at CJHall83. But the man with the with his finger on the pulse of the data, if indeed data does in fact have a pulse, who knows? But either way, Pete's Twitter handle is at AnalyticsWBA. We'll be back after the Bristol City game when hopefully I'm once again giddy with excitement and completely aboard the Steve Bruce playoff party bus. And I've got to be honest, I can see in a distance that Pete is counting his pennies to see if he's got enough money to buy a ticket. Even he's nearly convinced that's what it'll take, a win against Bristol City. And even Pete will be buying a ticket for the Steve Bruce playoff party bus. Hopefully you'll see us on there in the next edition of Albion Analysis. But until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies.
Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.